Silly, you men so very adept at wrongly faulting womankind, not seeing you're alone to blame for faults you plant in woman's mind. After you've won by urgent plea the right to tarnish her good name, you still expect her to behave, you that coaxed her into shame. You batter her resistance down, and then all righteousness proclaim that feminine frivolity, not your persistence, is to blame. When it comes to bravely posturing, your witlessness must take the prize. You're the child that makes a boogeyman and then recoils in fear and cries. Presumptuous beyond belief, you'd have the woman you pursue. Be Theus when you're courting her. Lucretia wants she falls to you. For plain default of common sense, could any action be so queer as oneself to cloud the mirror then complain that it's not clear? Whether you're favored or disdained, nothing can leave you satisfied. You whimper if you're turned away. You sneer if you've been gratified. With you, no woman can hope to score, whichever way she's bound to lose. Spurning you, she's ungrateful. Succumbing, you call her lewd. Your folly is always the same. You apply a single rule to the one you accuse of looseness in the one you brand as cruel. What happy mean could there be for the woman who catches your eye? If unresponsive she offends, yet whose complacence you decry. Still, whether it's torment or anger, in both ways, you've yourselves to blame. God bless the woman who won't have you, no matter how loud you complain. It's your persistent entreaties that change her from timid to bold. Having made her thereby naughty, you would have her good as gold. So where does the greater guilt lie for a passion that should not be? With the man who pleads out of baseness, or the woman debased by his plea? Or which is more to be blamed, though both will have cause for chagrin? The woman who sins for money, or the man who pays money to sin? So why are you men all so stunned at the thought you're all guilty alike? Either like them for what you've made them, or make of them what you can like. If you'd give up pursuing them, you'd discover, without a doubt, you've a stronger case to make against those who seek you out. I well know what powerful arms you wield in pressing for evil. Your arrogance has allied with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Welcome to our podcast on the Spanish poet, Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. Today we will look at her life and impact through poem and song. Her famous poem that is widely taught in Spanish departments is called Hombres Nacios Que Ocusas, or Foolish and Accusing Men. This is a blistering attack on male chauvinism, 
which has been memorized by many thousands of school children throughout the Hispanic world in the 20th century. Inez de la Cruz was hailed as the 10th muse during her day, worthy of the company of the nine goddesses of the arts, the muses. She has also been called a phoenix, a reference to a mystical bird that regenerated from its own ashes every 500 years. She is considered the most important writer of colonial times in Latin America. She is an icon of Mexican culture, calling into question the distinctions between European and American, as well as masculine and feminine, and her work signals the end of the long Middle Ages and the beginning of modern thought. Born in 1648 to unmarried parents or a daughter of the church in a small village called La Ponta outside Mexico City, her childhood was spent on a farm. She was supported materially by grandparents and learned to read from a local neighborhood woman or amiga. When she was young, she would ask her mother to dress her like a boy in hopes she would have the opportunity to study in Mexico City. In 1656, she was sent to the capital to live with her aunt and invited to become a lady-in-waiting for the vice regal court. Her saying yes gave her access to more education, both social and intellectual. Although by all accounts very beautiful, Sor Juana chose not to marry an elite Spaniard and take her place in the system of male domination of Spanish society, but rather to enter religious life and become a nun in the Order of St. Jerome. Convent life appealed to her because it put her into a community of women who oversaw their own institution and resources. This community also made use of her skills, electing her headmistress, archivist, and treasurer. Her entry into the prestigious wealthy convent gave her status she would not have had as the illegitimate daughter of an itinerant soldier and a woman who ran a small farm, even more than if she married into wealth and respectability. She was given the institutional privilege that accompanied being a member of the large convent. She wrote numerous poems for two female patronesses, one of which was the Countess of Paradis in her book, Castilian Inundation. This fueled speculation about the nature of their relationship. For example, Sor Juana writes, neither your being a, gen a woman nor absent is an impediment to loving you since, as you know, souls ignore distances and gender. Among similar allusions in other poems, criticism of the idea of this sexual attraction or relationship includes discussion of the idea of patronage and the fact that not all of her poems are positive towards the Countess. She also wrote hymns and plays for court and for the clergy, including religious celebrations, devotional works for lay people, and over half of her religious poetry were hymns for major feasts known as villancicos. One of such of the villancicos was the Madre La de los Primeros. This six-verse hymn translates partially as follows. Mother, the one who leads us, the one virgin mother, the mother of so many daughters, and mother of so many fathers, 
Enjoy today and your temple a celebration. Since your husband, you are the divine Atlas, Lady of the Reformation, the one who, the one for whom friars bless, bringing from the desert, from the sun, to the sea, from the air. Enjoy today. The prize of your work pays the heavens' command. That for heaven to rise, make them rest. Enjoy today. And now is an arrangement of De La Cruz's music performed by the London Oriana Choir. She wrote three autos sacramentales, or religious drama plays, which were often dramatizations of biblical stories and saints' lives, but also used myths from ancient Greece and Rome as allegories for Christian truths. Many consider Divine Narcissus as one of the greatest plays in the Spanish Golden Age. In her work called El Sueño, or First Dream, she writes about the journey of her soul through several stages of development and includes images of various mythological figures, a work more philosophical than theological. This is one of the few works written of her own volition rather than request of others. This is a section from The First Dream. 
In fine, the ship of the soul, sails furled, whose inexperience she entrusted to the treacherous sea, the fanning wind, thoughtlessly pursuing the sea to be loyal, constant the wind, against her will was forced to run ashore on the beach of the vast sea of knowing. With, bro- with rudder broken, yard arms snapped, kissing each grain of sand with every splinter. Recovering there, for caulking, she resorted to prudent rumination, the temperate wisdom born of thoughtful judgment, which, reigning in its operation, considered as more appropriate restriction to a single subject or taking separate account of each thing, one by one, contained in every one of those artfully constructed categories, ten in number, a metaphysical reduction teaching by encompassing generic entities in the purely mental constructs of abstract thought, eschewing embodiment in matter, the art of forming universals, sagely compensating by such art for a deficiency, the inability to know by one sole act of intuition every created thing, the need instead to move up step by step as on a ladder from one concept to the next, adopting of necessity the relative order of understanding required by the restricted power of mind, which must entrust its progress to a graduated form of reasoning. The imparting of such doctrine fortifies mind's weaknesses with learned nourishment and the lengthy, although smooth, continuing course of discipline endows it with lusty energies wherewith, inspirited, its pride aspires to the glorious banner that rewards the most arduous undertaking to ascend the lofty chair by cultivation, first of one, then of another form of knowledge till honor's summit, summit gradually comes in view, the easeful goal of a most laborious climb from bitter seed of fruit delighting taste, with even, which even at such expense is inexpensive." and treading valiantly, mind and plants, sure footsteps on the summit's lofty breath. The 1680s were the most prolific point in her writing life as her works were circulated in Spain by Vicerine Maria Luisa Manrique de Lara y Gonzaga. But after Maria Luisa left for Spain in 1688, Sorwana was attacked by critics especially regarding the controversy of the unauthorized publication of her famous Carta Athenagorica in 1690, which espoused her Christological views. Her attempt to clarify and renegotiate her intellectual positions led to response to Sor Philotia de la Cruz in 1691, which was her theological treatise and her response to the efforts of the Mexican church to silence her, in which they succeeded. This manuscript included cleverly worded critiques of masculinist culture and colonial subjugation, which represents a significant historical moment in feminist consciousness, while it continues to speak to women's condition in the present. Could I dare to take Holy Scripture into my most unworthy hands, thereby contradicting my sex, my age, and above all, custom? And thus I confess that many times this fear has taken the very pen from my hand and has made me withhold from my mind the understanding of these subjects to which it was drawn. 
Profane subjects presented no such problems, since the Holy Office does not punish heresies against art, which are punished by the condescending smiles of the initiated and the censure of the critics. Therefore, whether rightly or not, it is not to be feared. As it does not affect whether one is permitted to go to communion or hear mass, it concerns me little or not at all. Since according to the judgment of those who malign me, I have neither the obligation to know nor the aptitude to succeed. Therefore, if I err, it is not a fault, nor does it harm my reputation. It is not a fault because I have no obligation, nor does it discredit me because I have no possibility of succeeding and no one is obliged to do the impossible. In truth, I have never written anything where I was not forced against my will, and only at the pleasure of others, not only without pleasure, but with positive repugnance. For I have never judged myself to be learned or to have that kind of genius that carries with it the obligation to write. This is my usual response to those who urge me to write, and even more so when sacred subjects are involved. What understanding do I have, what course of studies, what material, or knowledge of it expect four superficial certificates. I leave these things to those who understand them. I do not want any trouble with the Holy Office. I'm ignorant and I tremble at the thought of making a statement that sounds heretical or of twisting the genuine meaning of any text. I do not study in order to write and even less to teach, which for me would for me be disproportionate pride, but only in order to see if by studying I become less ignorant. This is my response. These are my sentiments. She repeatedly expressed exasperations at hearing merits called faults, that is, disrespect for intelligence and derision of women for the same qualities that were praised in men. However, in 1693, after writing the response or the answer, she gave in to the demands of the church signed a confession to abandon intellectual pursuits, and was pressured to relinquish her extensive library and her scientific and musical instruments to raise funds for the convent. She renewed her vows at what was her 25th year in the convent, devoting herself to the care of the sick and soon after died. Her life ends in what appears to be martyrdom, in which she seems to accept her own silencing giving up the creativity that had defined the meaning of her life since her youth? Or was it just her final spiritual retreat before her death? Scholars no longer ask why did she abandon the activities that gave her meaning in life, but rather, to what extent? During the time of her death, she was well known as far as Peru, Colombia, Stockholm, and Spain. She was rediscovered 200 years later by feminist scholars and in 1974 was acclaimed at a celebration in Mexico City as the first feminist in the New World. De La Cruz cared for beauty and nature, sought the equality of women and men, challenged the church to affirm a fuller vision of what their mission was, and stood for equality, justice, and for the care of God's creation. Today, her image graces the front of Mexico's 200 peso bill, and her life is subject to a feature film, several plays, and a novel. Her and her works are the topic of many scholarly conferences, books, and articles, but the need for more English translations from Spanish has hampered the spread and knowledge of her work today.
This is one of Sir Juana's love poems. Inez, I have to gloat. You're gorgeous and you love me. All this pleasure, I'll never be the same. When you're jealous, I'm a trembling thread. And when you flirt in front of me, I die. You flaunt those hips to drive me wild. One thrust, you're squandering the honey that makes me high. Save it for me, Inez. When you cover me with kisses, I'm transformed. When you're angry with me, I can't breathe. When you go out, I lie awake all night. Still, Inez, none of this really matters. Just take me to bed where I like it, with my wine skin and your succulent worm. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed learning about De La Cruz. This podcast was brought to you by Squarespace, Blue Apron, and viewers like you. Thank, Thank you! you.